Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is Friday, June 18th. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Take Two. We're switching it up a little bit today. We have only one guest. Congressman Chris Stewart is joining us today over the phone. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Are you in Utah this week with everyone else kind of making visits around the area? Yep. Came home last night, and it's uh, always good to be home. It's been a couple weeks since I've been home, so uh, it's good to be home, see your family and friends, and to talk to, you know, your constituents. And, um, you know, uh, some people go back to D.C. and stay, and I come home every moment I can, and it's just always good to be here. Well, welcome to the heat wave. Uh, before we dig into some other topics, I want to talk a little bit about how hot it here is here in Utah. I don't know what D.C. has been like. Has it been hot? Once it gets hot, it's hot there. Uh, yeah, it's it's humid there, obviously, and it's kind of a city humid. It's uh, it's not the same thing. It hasn't been nearly as hot. In fact, this last week, it was actually kind of pleasant. But, you know, I check the weather every day and see what it's like back home, and I hear from folks. And, you know, Heidi, I grew up, farming and ranching and, and of course the district I represent I have downtown Salt Lake City and the, and the suburbs around but I also represent some of the most rural districts uh, and counties really not only in the state but in the entire west and a lot of ranchers uh, a lot of farmers and I talk with them all the time I've met with them multiple times through the spring and early summer and I know how hard this drought has been on them uh, when you hear about them having to cull their cows and because they just can't feed them, you, you hear farmers who are expecting to get four crops of hay and are going to feel lucky if they get two. Uh, if you grow up ranching, you kind of ache for the earth when you see how dry it is, and we're very aware of it. I think everyone is. Absolutely, and I think all of us at home are thinking, oh, I don't want to have to let my grass go brown. That's a big hardship on me. But when you think about it, where our food comes from, these ranchers' livelihoods, they're really at stake for all this. So we're all paying close attention. And wildfire season has started even before, uh, I guess, the official start of summer here. Uh, Senator Romney also home today, and he's talking about a wildland fire bill. When we're talking about wildland fires, I remember back from the Bryan Head fire a few years ago, that was a big topic of what the federal government could or could not do. Should we be logging dead wood? Do we need to be clearing this area? Is there any responsibility? Uh, what do you think on the topic? Can the federal government do anything to help with these fires, or is this all personal responsibility for us here in Utah? Oh, for sure the federal government can, can help. And what we're asking is for the federal policy just not to make it worse. Because for two generations now, it has made it worse. You know, uh, when I was uh, back before I'd ever thought I'd, you know, ever thought about politics, ever thought I'd find myself in Congress. I was a pilot. I was stationed at uh, an Air Force base up in the up in the Northwest, up in um, 
Washington, and I remember flying, and you could look down and you could see the forest, which is heavily forested up in the Cascades area, and, and it was like there was this invisible line through the middle of the forest, where one forest looked dark, and it was kind of dry, and it was even from altitude, you could see it was overgrown, and the other forest just looked remarkably different. It was green, and you could clearly see it was more healthy, and I didn't understand why, and I remember asking, and someone told me, well, because one is a state forest, a healthy one, and the other is a federal forest. Uh, and, and like I say, let's just ask for federal policy not to make it worse because it has made it worse. It's, they're so restrictive on, on even clearing underbrush, not underbrush, not even not even cutting trees, just taking out the underbrush. And uh, there's some things that we could do. And uh, Senator Romney's, you know, his efforts there is highlighting some of that. There's something we could do that would actually make the forest more beautiful. It'd make it more healthy. We'd be able to eliminate, you know, some of the unsightly things from, say, the bark beetle. We have all these dead trees that are out there. You can't cut them down and and even more importantly you'd be able to you know create a much healthier uh, environment for suppressing fires or for controlling fires absolutely i remember uh, president trump at some point said something about raking the forest floors and everyone made fun of him because they're like oh what are we going to do go out there with our rakes but it's the general idea of there has to be some kind of clean out and that's something you back yeah, absolutely. I mean, for for so many reasons, it's prettier, it's more accessible, it's better for wildlife. I mean, some of it is so thick that elk and deer, you know, big game can't move through it, so they just avoid it, and it, it compresses them into areas where they now compete with each other for, you know, as a for food, and including, by the way, in some cases against wild horse herds. Um, you know, it's just far better to manage it. We have the ability to manage it. The presumption should be management can make it better. Uh, and not make it worse if we do it smart. Absolutely. I know in years past, when you look at the way the earth works, sometimes letting forests burn, it's part of the cycle of the earth. But now that we're living close to them, it's just not as realistic to say, let's just let you know nature take its course because we also live very close to these areas and certainly endangers a lot of lives with the wildland firefighters we put out there, the homes that are evacuated. So definitely a lot to consider on the topic. Yeah, and I won't repeat what you just said. I'll just say I agree with you. I mean, we just live in a different world where we can't allow for the forest to sweep through with massive fires like they've done historically. Uh, it's just not it's just not a possibility now. So we have to look at other tools. Speaking of times changing, um, I was a little surprised by how quickly this moved through Congress. But this week, uh, Juneteenth passed both the House and the Senate uh, just barely Wednesday. The House voted overwhelmingly on Wednesday to make Juneteenth a federal holiday uh, sent to the president's desk. Uh, the official day is tomorrow. A lot of federal workers had the day off today. Tell me where you stood on this and why. Yeah, I've supported this for a long, long time. Um, when I was in the Air Force, again, we spent a lot of time in the South, and I remember living in Texas and not knowing, I mean, I'd heard of Juneteenth, but I didn't really know much about it because, you know, in, in, up in Utah, up here in the North, it wasn't obviously such a cultural part of our history. Um, and, you know, from going back to even those times, and, and people would talk about, you know, we should make this a national holiday, and I've always supported the idea. I mean, this is a big deal. Um, you can imagine what it means to African-Americans who can trace their ancestry back to the slaves um, and what it means to them and their family. But frankly, it means something to all of us. This was an, a, an enormously important event in, in U.S. history where we said after the Emancipation Proclamation and, and to be able to advise and inform all of the slaves, you are now free. Oh, my gosh, that is a beautiful thing. Uh, there was blood and treasure and sweat uh, shed for that. 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, I think most of us are really glad to, to just to be able to have this holiday where we can recognize that now. Absolutely. Well, I am happy to see that done. Uh, another thing that we want to talk about this week is something that keeps coming up year after year, but especially in the last few weeks and months here in Utah. The Utah delegation is again asking to meet with President Biden. This comes after Secretary Deb Holland uh, made her visit to Utah. She stopped. She talked to a lot of our congressional leaders, talked to tribes in the area, spoke to people, cities and counties to try to figure out what to do. She made her recommendation to the president, and the recommendation was to put everything back to where it was before, those larger boundaries. The Utah delegation wants to sit down and talk with the president about this. What do you think you can or will say that would change his mind at this point? Or could you be happy with going back to where those larger boundaries were as long as they stayed and they stayed that way and they weren't always ping-ponging? Well, I mean, there's a couple of goals here that I think we want to achieve. One of them is what you just said. It's not good for anyone to have these go back and forth, to ping-pong back and forth, to use a phrase that you you did again, when we have a new president. It's unsustainable for local communities. It's unsustainable for the tribes, and it makes, the, the obviously, the monuments very, very difficult to manage. And and we're not changing the acreage by a few thousand. We're changing it by four or 500,000 acres. So uh, stability has got to be one of the uh, goals and objectives. But the other thing is the reduced uh, acreage should be one of our objectives. And, and we've demonstrated that. All of this is federal land. It's not like this land is immediately open to be exploited or sold to private parties or to, you know, to be ruined or or uh, you know, destroyed in any way. It's already protected federal lands. It's just whether it's in the monument, whether it has some of the additional restrictions. And there's some important economic considerations, and it's incredibly important for one of the poorest parts of not only Utah, but frankly, poorest parts of the West, where you're taking away uh, you know, significant economic opportunity when you look at some of the mineral extraction, which by the way, and I know this isn't the topic, but I gotta mention it just quickly. If you support the idea of, of of diversifying our energy, bringing in wind and solar to move away from carbon and oil and gas uh, sources of energy, you have to understand that it's going to take batteries, tens of millions of batteries to do that. And we can't begin to make those batteries now because we don't have access to the rare earths that are essential to that. And, and in some cases, we're locking up some of those minerals that are inc- incredibly important. In fact, just vital to producing the batteries that we need as we switch to wind and solar. We're locking up those minerals and saying, well, we're going to buy it from China. That's a bad idea for all sorts of reasons. It's a bad idea from a national security, and it's bad from a, from an environmental perspective because China doesn't have any of the restrictions on mining that the U.S. does. It's far worse on a global perspective to have China mine those earths than it is for the U.S. So, and that's just one example of where we lock these monuments up and take away these mineral act, uh, points that could be really beneficial economically. So, I mean, we'll make these arguments to the president, and I got to be honest, I don't think there's a chance in the world he's going to change his mind. But I want to have the opportunity to make our argument with him, to put our our concerns on the table and hopefully try to persuade him. Have but, you heard uh, back from the White House at all? Have they said, yes, we're willing to meet? Or are they? is it crickets right now? It's a bunch of crickets. Uh, and, and, and I don't think... Um, you know, it's hard to read that other than they just don't want to meet with us, don't want to hear what we have to say. I think their view is, well, we under, already understand. We spent time with uh, Secretary Holland and, and conveyed what we could to her. But no, uh, we'll see. And I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. Do you see value in what Secretary Holland came up with? She obviously came, and it seems like she was sincere when she was here and trying to listen to all the sides. 
is, you know, is her recommendation maybe the right one or is this political? Well, in my view, it's not the right one for some of the reasons that I've already expressed as well as others. Uh, and it, and it's, uh, I think, entirely political in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, she was sincere. And many of us walked away really grateful for the conversations we had with her over this few days. And she was very intent on listening. Um, and, and she approached it with great humility, which was, I think, just very impressive and, and many of us were, were grateful for. Uh, but at the end of the day, she works for a president and she works for an administration that I, I think doesn't care particularly about Utah, doesn't care about rural Utah, but they do care about environmental uh, activists and special interests. And I think that's who they're responding to. So I, I don't want to sound overly cynical, but I, I do think this is political. And uh, and I think the president just, you know, did what he had to do for the constituents that I think he cares most about. Before we move on, you asked Congress uh, for the full report to be released to Congress. Have you seen that yet or are you just seen the pieces that have been reported so far? Yeah, we haven't seen it. Uh, we've asked for it. But of course, some of that was leaked, but we haven't seen the formal report yet. Gotcha. Yesterday, uh, one of the big chonkers was a vote to repeal authorization for the use of military force against Iraq. As I understand it, you voted uh, in favor of repealing that, and then Utah's other three congressmen, Burgess Owens, Blake Moore, and John Curtis, voted to keep the war authorization in place. Tell me why you want that out of there. Yeah, there's a couple reasons. This is actually, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about it, because this is actually very important. Um, you know, I've mentioned now a couple of times, I'm a former Air Force pilot. I come from a family of military, my dad, my brothers, uh, and now the next generation. I supported our efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq. I was a huge proponent of it, both while I was in the military and, and, and since uh, as a private citizen and as, as a member of Congress. But sitting on the House Intelligence Committee over the last five or six years, one thing has become blazingly obvious to me, and this is just irrefutable. And that is we we have not been able to achieve the objectives that we need to in Iraq and Afghanistan, short of sending another 300,000 troops back. And we're not we're just simply not going to do that. The American people wouldn't support that. I wouldn't support that. So then we have to look at, okay, well, what is the alternative? And the second thing is, you know, we have spent so much time, 20 years now, thousands of American lives, untold trillions of dollars. And at some point you have to say to the people of Afghanistan, hey, we've done everything we can for you. We've been here now for more than 20 years and it is now up to you to take this baton and to carry it forward. And uh, and I think that's just the point of this AUMF is to say, and there's actually one more point which I'll make as we conclude, but that's kind of the genesis for this. That's That's kind of the foundation for my thinking. And then lastly, it's this. We have given the president such broad authority through this AUMF and, and through one other that it's time for Congress to reclaim some of their claim, their prerogatives, so reclaim some of their authority to say, if we're going to have troops overseas for literally a generation, 20 years and going, Congress should have some say in that. And that was one of my primary objectives here is to, is to force the administration to recognize Congress has a role to play here. Last thing I'll say, Heidi, is this. Some people say, well, it leaves us more exposed. It, it leaves us so the president is constrained in what he can do. Absolutely, 100%, absolutely not true. There's still a previous AUMF from 2001, gives the president all of the authority he needs to protect American interests, protect American lives overseas, 
it gives him broad authorities. This was actually kind of a duplicate of it, but again, it was a chance to say, let Congress have some say in how we run longstanding international uh, relations and uh, longstanding implications for our military. I know this is something Senator Mike Lee's talked about a lot too, whether it was under President Biden or more recently President Trump, that you know those war powers, a lot of them needed to go back to Congress. Why do you think your vote was so different than the rest of the Utah congressional delegation? We've got four Republicans in there, but your vote was different. Yeah, I guess there's a couple things. And I don't want to say, look, these guys are wrong or foolish. I mean, everyone takes it, makes their own conclusions. And it's not the only time that we've ever disagreed. Uh, but I think my vote was informed by my, by my time in the military. I think it was informed by the time that I spent on the Intelligence Committee. And and look, I spend the majority of my time in, in Washington, D.C., working on intelligence and national security. It, it is my focus. Um, and so I feel like I have maybe some uh, background and some depth there that changes my view. And uh, and I guess lastly, it's just, you know, our leadership wanted us to vote against this. Uh, and I think that that sometimes comes into play with some people's votes that they don't want to go against their own party, against their own leadership. But I just felt so strongly about it that it was something I felt like I had to do. And maybe some of the others just you know, concluded differently. Different opinions. Well, before we let you go, I want to talk real quickly about uh, President Biden's first overseas trip. He was in Europe. He went to the G7, uh, met with President Putin. When you watch what happened there, uh, what was his reception like? Did the meeting go well? Does it make a difference when you sit down with the president of Russia these days? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's never a good idea just to ignore other national leaders. Uh, whether they be from President Xi in China or President Putin or Kim Jong-un or any one of them, I think there needs to be either is there some type of official dialogue, and sometimes that needs to be face-to-face. As long as the president is going in clear-eyed, as long as he's going in well-prepared, and as long as he's going in to protect American interests and to advocate for American interests. Um, so I don't have any objections. Some people said, well, there wasn't much point to this meeting because there wasn't an agenda and they didn't have any goals they could achieve. Yeah, maybe that's true. It would have been better if they had some, you know, overarching, uh, you know, concern that they thought they were going to be able to resolve. I still think it's better to talk, but I, but I did leave our, my observations on this as, as we kind of left that and moved on now, but, uh, you know, I don't think the president did poorly, but I don't think that we achieved some of the things we wanted to do. And for example, for him to say to President Putin, well, here's a list of 16 critical infrastructures that you shouldn't attack with cyber. I mean, the implication for that is just kind of what? What are you thinking? Well, what about all of these uh, all these other critical forces? Why would you why would you specifically identify 16 and, and then imply otherwise? Well, the others we don't care that much about. That so. was surprising to me that the gates were kind of open. It was like, leave these alone. The others, you know, you can have that. And it seems to me the bar should be absolutely no cyber attacks. Just knock it off. Yeah. Why, why, why in the world would we say don't ever attack U.S. Uh, government or U.S. businesses? Why would you ever provide a list? I mean, to me, that the staffing on that, the the people in the background who put that together, I just think they should be uh, they should be fired. Frankly, it's just such a such a mistake. But this is again something I've spent a lot of time on advocating for, and that is the the cyber policy that we've been. And this goes back actually to President Obama, and I'll, I'll try to state this briefly because I know that we're you know you're getting short on time. But the, but the people, Vladimir Putin hides behind these transnational criminal organizations. He says, well, it's not us; it's these criminals. Well, no, it's not. They receive significant training. The coding that it takes to penetrate firewalls here in the U.S., whether it's the U.S. government 
or U.S. business is incredibly difficult to get through. You have to have incredibly sophisticated training and coding capabilities to do that. They get that from Vladimir Putin and his government. They get financial services. A lot of these criminal organizations, they extort money, as you know. Well, they've got to be able to transport that money, you know, transfer it to their accounts and actually be able to disperse it. Can't do that, that without banking and banking services provided by Russia. They never attack Russia. That's obvious. I mean, it's clearly pointed towards the Western interests. And uh, and I could go on with other things where we say, look, it's very clear that you are supporting them behind the scenes. You've got to stop doing it. That's what President Biden should have said. Not here's a list of 16. He should have said, as you said, Heidi, don't attack us ever. It's unacceptable. And we're going to respond. And that's the last point I'll make. And that is our policy should shift to where instead of just pure defense, we should make them pay a price, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, any one of them. We have allowed them for far too long now to attack us with impunity and to never make them pay a price. And I really think we need to use some of our offensive capabilities to make it so it's harder for them and they have to think about it more seriously than they do now. So what's the right price? Because whether it's Republicans or Democrats, everyone talks um, big talk that, you know, Russia can't do this and they can't do it anymore. But there's not much we do aside from a small slap on the wrist. What would really make them stop? Is there anything yeah, I mean, and in the big in the big sphere, there's all sorts of things, sanctions and you know international pressure, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm talking about specifically cyber and cyber tools. Uh, myself and two Democrats on the on the Intelligence Committee sent the president a letter last week outlining these concerns and saying what we thought they should do. Again, bipartisan myself and two Democrats, but the NSA, among others, but primarily the NSA, has very powerful tools that they could use to take down and, and in most cases, destroy these networks that are used to attack us. They don't do that because, A, we don't want to, in some cases, reveal our capabilities. That makes them so we can't use them again. And B, we want to have a measured response. But we've, hold, we've held those tools in reserve entirely. And again, I think we need to use some of those tools so that if someone attacks us and their network is destroyed, for example, that would be an alternative that we need to consider now that we haven't used in the past. Very good. I know you're short on time yourself. You're busy. Uh, before we let you go, what's the next bill that you're looking at and concentrating that's the biggie for you? Well, uh, right now we're in the middle of what we call appropriation season. We're sitting on the House Appropriations Committee, which is just a huge amount of work. It's getting the spending bills uh, so that we can fund our government. Um, that's, uh, it's literally dozens and dozens, like 60, 70 hearings, and many of those will last you know, six, eight, 10 hours. So that's taking a big part of my time right now, and that's the primary focus. All right. I know that everyone's watching that carefully. Everyone's worried about inflation back home, making sure that things are paid for, and also that giant infrastructure bill. But we will have to talk about those another day. Congressman Chris Stewart, thanks so much for making us a part of your day here. Hey, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we will see all of you next week again on Friday for Take Two.